Jesse Thorne is the host and producer of Bullseye, a nationally syndicated NPR program that began 20 years ago as The Sound of Young America, a radio show he hosted while he was studying at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Jesse has conducted countless interviews with artists and comedians, ranging from Bay Area rap legend E-40 to comedian David Cross to Oscar winners Holly Hunter and Forrest Whitaker. In addition to Bullseye, Thorne is the owner of MaximumFun.org, an audience-supported network of more than two dozen podcasts, including Judge John Hodgman, My Brother, My Brother and Me, and his comedy podcast, Jordan Jesse Go, that he hosts with comedian Jordan Morris. A California native, Jesse grew up in Sac- uh, excuse me, San Francisco and currently lives in Los Angeles with his wife and three kids. Welcome, Jesse. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Alex. I think you're thinking of Greta Gerwig, who grew up in Sacramento. Ah, uh, yes. That's right. Or Brie Larson. Yeah. You know, we could, yeah. I, I don't My know, friend, comedian short. Guy Branham, grew up outside Davis, California. So there you go. We want to remind the audience that this is a live event and we have a moderator looking at the chat to ask Jesse questions from you guys as we go along. So Jesse, the first question from us is pretty straightforward. How did you become interested in radio? You know, it's funny, right before we went live, Max and I were talking about listening to the San Francisco Giants game on our on our respective phones as we wandered around our house taking <laughs> care of our children. And I honestly think that I went into radio because I loved baseball more than anything as a kid. And I loved listening to baseball on the radio, not least because I didn't have cable. And there were very, very few baseball games on TV back then. Like, I mean, you know, uh, KTVU Channel 2 uh, was the giant station in uh, over the air. And maybe they carried you know, 10 or 15 games a year. So I listened to as many Giants games on the radio as I could. And my first broadcasting hero was definitely Hank Greenwald, who was the Giants play-by-play announcer up until the uh, early 90s. I also listened to public radio in, you know, I would say in my parents' cars. My parents actually did not have cars, but in my parents' houses. And I always, like that that was the radio that was on if there was radio on. So I never really expected to become a disc jockey or whatever. Not, not least because of the kind of music that I would want a disc jockey. It would be, you know, was not a, a great place uh, for white dudes. But it was sort of a combination of those things and the fact that radio is cheap and easy to make relative to other media. And that was doubly or triply true 20 years ago. Like I went to college just at the time that maybe a normal person could buy a decent digital video camera, but it was certainly out of my price range. If I was four years younger, I might have ended up becoming a filmmaker or a video journalist or something like that. But radio was simple and accessible. So Jesse, what were the early versions of The Sound of Young America like? And looking back, what what did you like about it? And what would sort of make you cringe listening back now? I'm confident that all of it would make me cringe. <laughs> um, <laughs> and what's, uh, what's impressive is I think it's probably like 75% of it is on the web right now for people to listen to. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I basically started the show with... A guy who was, I was his RA named Jordan, who's now the co-host of my show, Jordan Jesse Go with me. And our friend Gene, who was just the funniest guy I knew besides Jordan. And in the early days, we had the, I had the idea we were going to make like finely produced radio, whatever, whatever. And it turned out like I made one piece that was highly produced and it came out okay, but it was you know, a month of work. And I was like, oh, we have an hour a week to do. So 
we would write comedy, you know, we wrote a number of like, uh, like hard boiled noir parody shows and a whole thing with a, that was just us talking. I remember we did a whole thing that was just us talking to a whale sounds record. Um, <laughs> we wrote a lot of stuff because we were scared to just talk. So we would do contests if we had tickets to give away and always on college radio, even a relatively big college radio station, like the one we were on in Santa Cruz, the trick of a contest is getting someone to call in. It's not filtering through the people who called in. It's like, right. you have tickets to the movies tonight. Can, can I get <laughs> someone to call and take these tickets to the movies? And eventually I think we just figured out that it was a lot easier to fill the time with interviews once we started doing that, I think we, we got better at it over time. The first one I remember was with Dick Dale, the king of the surf guitar. Jordan, I think, booked Dick Dale. He went to dickdale.com and there was a phone number at the bottom and he called it and Dick Dale answered in his trailer and, and said, yes, this is Dick Dale. And uh, he came on our show. And that was kind of the, that was kind of the start. Was, uh, was Jordan a good, I mean, you were his RA. Was he a good dormer, I guess? Did he keep his oh, room tight? It was the performance. <laughs> it was the performing arts hall. So it was a bunch of real dorkatrons. <laughs> and uh, I don't exclude myself from that. And uh, yes, Jordan was a wonderful, I mean, you know, Jordan, Jordan, I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw Jordan under the bus here, but Jordan, Jordan might occasionally partake of a formerly illegal substance from, from time to time these days. I don't think he Goodness. was back then. He was a real, oh. was a real model resident. In fact, the first, some of the first memories I have of Jordan are being angry and resentful at him uh, when I realized that he was funnier than me. That might have been a question for later. Uh-oh. No, I'm just kidding. And, and then after a while, I was like, I can't compete with this. I should, uh, I should exploit it. <laughs> All right, so seeing as how The Sound of Young America happened while you were in college and later evolved into Bullseye, what advice might you offer college-age students who would be interested in the field nowadays when podcasting and radio is much more popular? Yeah, I mean, I think that the things that I did, and most of them were not planned, but the things that I did that worked for me were, I was on a station that people listened to, which meant that there was some accountability. I, what, you know, KZSC in Santa Cruz isn't a huge station, uh, but, you know, Santa Cruz is a pretty ideal college radio market. You know, everybody there is stoned and wants to listen to reggae. And so there were actually people listening to the show. So I think we felt responsibility to that. I think the fact that we had to show up every week because it was a radio show, like it's illegal to not be there. Someone has to be on the board in case the emergency broadcast system goes off. I think that forced us to practice. And I think that we always cared about the audience and making something that was better this week than it was last week. I think in college radio, frankly, I can't say that we weren't self-indulgent, but <laughs> at least our self-indulgence had purpose. It wasn't an aimless self-indulgence. And, you know, I mean, as far as podcasting goes... I think the lesson to learn there is not to start a podcast and do it the way I did, because I got lucky that, you know, as much as I was exactly the wrong age to be able to afford a, a good video camera or to be able to edit video on my home computer, I was 
exactly the right age to fall into podcasting at the very beginning of podcasting. And I don't think that's necessarily replicable, but the thing that is replicable is that I was working hard to do a good job and I was open to any venue that would have me. So when I started podcasting, podcasts barely existed and no one listened to them, but I thought I was doing sketch comedy at the time. And I was like, well, we do sketch comedy shows for 50 people all the time. Like we write sketches to entertain a group of 50 people, you know, 40 people sometimes, you know? And I thought if I could get 40 or 50 people to listen to a podcast of my radio show, I should do that. The other thing is I didn't quit. I mean, I could have just finished college and quit. I couldn't get a job in radio and I just kind of kept doing it. You know, you can't, uh, you can't win if you don't play the game. So you given you were an early adopter of podcasting, did you obviously you had a vision for what it might become, but did you ever think it would become as big as it is today? And, and where do you think the future looks like for it? Max, I hate to, I hate to correct you, but I did not have a vision of what it might become. (laughs) It might as, it might as well be, uh, you know, I mean, like no one had an idea of what it might become, you know, Twitter was a podcasting company. Mm. Twitter was a spinoff of a company called Odeo that was a that was a, supposed to be a podcast startup. It was a part of podcast startup. And Twitter was how they communicated between each other as a goof. And then they're like, oh, let's try making this a product. There was a couple of things that I did think I could see. One was no one was going to give me a radio show doing the kind of shit that I wanted to do while I was trying to get a job and failing to get a job in regular radio, I thought if I want to do something like this, I just, I have to find a way to do it myself because no one is going to, like I couldn't even get a job driving a prize van, much less being on air somewhere. And I had no connections or anything. You know what I mean? Like I was borrowing, I was trading cars with my mom to go from San Francisco to Santa Cruz to record my show because my car was too dangerous to drive over the mountain that's between those two great cities. I think I saw that. I think I did see, frankly, if I can give myself some credit, I I saw that there was an audience for not dumb comedy in audio which was, didn't exist on the radio, still basically doesn't exist on the radio. People have car talk and like, that's a real thing, but it's not Mr. Show. And I just thought at the time, like, what if people that were trying to make Mr. Show were working in audio? You know, like the best case scenario at the time was Howard Stern. And there's no shade to Howard Stern. Howard Stern's a, a genius broadcaster or else he wouldn't be Howard Stern. But like that was the only form of comedy on the radio, Howard Stern and shitty versions of Howard Stern. So I thought there was room for something, I, you know, something. In your opinion, what makes a hit podcast stand out in a saturated media market? Oprah, I would say having That's, Oprah yeah. involved in some capacity. Maybe the royal family. Yeah, like I can I suggest, I mean, this is a, just an idea for young podcasters, but think about, uh, having Barack Obama talk to Bruce Springsteen. That might work. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's see if we can put that together. I think if you don't have access to talent who already have an audience, I think the show has to be really distinctive and there has to be a compelling reason other than it being good for people to tune in. 
because the bar for podcasting is much higher than the bar for broadcasting in that you have to get someone to subscribe. You don't have to just get someone to not turn off the radio, right? One of the easiest ways to do that is to tap into an existing affinity community of some kind. On Reddit, there is a subreddit called magnet fishing. This is where people get a rope and tie an industrial magnet to it and then go to a bridge and drop the magnet off the bridge and then pull it up and see if they found a rusty bicycle, which is the only thing that's at the bottom of the river, but it's a, it's a hobby. And like, if you can make the best magnet fishing podcast, there's 10,000 people, 20,000 people who are really into magnet fishing. God knows why, but they are. And if you can make the best show for them, well, they have a really good reason to want to listen in. Like I mentioned, I'm a big fan of the San Francisco Giants and I listen to some really okay San Francisco Giants podcasts. The reason is that I have a really strong reason to want to tune in. Shows like Jordan Jesse Go, which, you know, we've existed a long time and I think we're, it's a good show and we have a good audience, but, you know, we often joke that there's really no reason for anyone to, to tune in or subscribe. Like, other than a friend telling them that it's good, there's no, there's no hook. There's no famous person. There's no, you know what I mean? You really have to find a reason for people to check in. And then it does have to be good. It doesn't have to be perfect. And that isn't, shouldn't be your goal. But it, if people check in and it sucks, well, they're just going to check out. Do you think, um, do you think you just lost on. some magnet fishers? Like maybe about 10,000 listeners who- <laughs> I met a real life magnet fisher. Right I've, been, I've been using magnet fishing as an example of a ridiculous hobby subreddit for about two years since I, since I dropped Dragon's Fucking Cars, which is a, a really great subreddit if you ever want to check it out. Not safe for work. The other day, I went to a cleanup event uh, on a hillside near my house and I was talking to a nice, actually a, a woman who is a Max Fun listener. And that's how I had found out about this, this cleanup. I was there with my mom and her husband had brought his magnet fishing equipment and was picking up bottle caps from the hillside with his magnet fishing equipment. I was like, so tell me about what the appeal of magnet fishing is for you. And uh, he was unable to describe it <laughs> jesse i think one of the one of the things that differentiates podcasts or even radio as a medium is it's very personal and vulnerable right it's kind of intimate conversations and even listening back to episodes of bullseye the last week preparing for this for you in particular you know i've learned everything about when your dad passed away to him struggling with dementia beforehand things your therapist has told you conversations you had on the phone with your seventh grade girlfriend you know shows you love growing up like was that style of interviewing where how you connect with the guest is often by you sort of revealing some of yourself i think a lot of the great public radio interviewers have a way to connect with guests and kind of bring up that vulnerability but maybe not with the same just not i wouldn't say strategy necessarily but they're they they do it necessarily without revealing a lot of themselves and i think that that's a mark of a lot of great podcasts and certainly your style was that a conscious choice or just sort of how things evolved for you as you became an interviewer yeah i mean to some extent it is it's funny like i think of myself as being in a kind of liminal space between terry gross and mark Marin or you know pete holmes or, or whatever I don't mean to whatever them, they're both wonderful. Uh, I've never met Pete Holmes, but I know Mark and uh, he's the greatest. I've talked to Terry and she's totally my hero. 
so I, I sometimes I worry that I kind of split the difference and ended up in, in neither in neither camp. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's a big buzzword going around fan communities and podcast fan communities right now, which is parasocial. It is the friendship that you have with someone who does not know you. I think that is a, a mostly a strength of podcasting, not exclusively, but mostly. For me, I think I always thought of myself as a performer rather than a journalist, not out of some kind of ideological anti-journalist, whatever. I just, I was like doing sketch comedy and we used to do, we used to do a lot of comedy on the show and it became more and more journalistic over the years, but I always thought of it as, as a comedy show. So I think that automatically made me not Terry Gross or Charlie Rose or whoever the analogs were at the time. But I think that it was like, you know, Terry Gross is covering the world. And she has like the premise of Fresh Air is this is the greatest and most important stories in the world, right? She has a staff of brilliant people that work with her to do that. And my show for many years was just me and I had another job. It always just reflected, it was like necessarily, it was like my show is my, my perspective on arts and culture. So if the show is that, you have to kind of show some of yourself to to show what that perspective is to the audience. I think there are other public media people who do that. Like I know Ira does that once in a while. Ira Glass does that once in a while. They often will edit out that part. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, my show also kind of not by design is very lightly edited. And that was because I used to do, I mean, for years, even when the show was pre-recorded, I used to do the interviews to time because I had a job and I didn't have time to mess around with the, how long the interviews were. I just had to get them the right the first time, <laughs> you know, like the thing that made my show 59 minutes, which is supposed to be the length of the show was that I would have bumper music and it would either be 42 seconds long or 14 seconds long, depending on how close to the post I had gotten in my basically live interview. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. You know, with this different take on, on interviewing that you have almost where you share yourself, what are the biggest do's and don'ts when it, that you've learned when it comes to interviewing? I think you have to be sincerely curious. You have to ask questions that prompt reflection and are sincerely open-ended. I think you have to think about what you actually want to know. For my show, I have to think to some extent about what the shape of the interview will be, whether it will be narrative or whether it will take a, you know, a structure like a five paragraph essay or what the form of it will be. You kind of have to have that available to you. You have to know that you're doing that while you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is, do you actually care, right? Like the biggest thing is, do you care? And are you actually thinking about what are the things that I actually want to know? You have to trust that, you know, as long as you're bringing a certain amount of self-awareness to the table, that you can recognize that what you are curious about will allow you to serve as a proxy for the audience. You mentioned Dick Dale early in your career, but what was it like and how did you get people who you really wanted to talk to onto your show in the early days? Now, obviously your show, I'm sure you have publicists and people pitching you for them to come on your show. But I think a lot of, you know, young people going into podcasting or any type of interviewing maybe have a lot of 
imposter syndrome about uh, I'm not going to ask somebody who I'd really want to interview to come on my show. It's not even really a show yet. So did you ever feel that? And how did you sort of push through that when you couldn't find a job in radio and you just continued your own show to just ask people, will you come do this? I mean, I'm here. You know right. what I mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure you guys know if anyone is watching, but I don't. I mean, first of all, we do get publicist pitches these days, but for many years, I mean, I'm talking like 10 plus years, we basically never had guests on who were, had been pitched to us by publicists. Um, I mean, we often worked with publicists to get guests on the show, but it was us making a list of all the people we would want to have and then calling them and some of them might have a project out. Uh, so it still, it doesn't come to us. I mean, our show is the least successful NPR show. So, you know, sometimes, they, sometimes we, we book people who have been offered, but generally we are pursuing. What I did back in the day, and I, I always booked the show outside of Dick, the aforementioned Dick Dale interview, is I thought, like, what is the most compelling way to present what we're doing, right? And that was, we're a public radio show in the San Francisco Bay Area, <laughs> despite the fact that we were a college radio show in the Monterey Bay Area. But the Monterey Bay Area is part of the San Francisco Bay Area, depending on how you count, just as Sacramento is. We would look for guests who are doing a lot of press and would do pretty much any press. So that meant authors who go on book tour and they just do every interview they can they can book unless they're Stephen King or something. That meant comedians who were coming to town, you know, comics who were playing the punchline in San Francisco were a big source of guests for us. And that was because they come to town and they do a day of press. Like that's part of what comedians do. And so they go do morning radio and then they do a newspaper interview if they can in the afternoon and they're there available. Because we couldn't get the most famous people, we booked the best people and we kind of built from there. For a long time, the most famous pe person that had been on Bullseye was probably Henry Rollins, who isn't particularly famous. You know what I'm like? Not, that's not to speak ill of Henry Rollins. He's very famous to the people whose lives he's changed, the sure. many people whose lives he's changed, but he's not going to be on the cover of Entertainment Weekly anytime soon. You know, once we booked Matt Besser from the Upright Citizens Brigade, then we could book Mike Nelson from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Once we booked Mike Nelson from Mystery Science Theater 3000, maybe we could say, hey, we've had Matt Besser and Mike Nelson on the show uh, and we can book David Cross. If we've had David Cross on the show, maybe we can book Patton Oswalt because primarily even certainly guests and, not pub and certainly publicists are, are not actually aware of what the audience of your venue is, they only can like look and see whether it has a decent web page and look at the guests of the list of past guests and see if it's quote unquote for real. Right. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, they're aware of the New York Times and stuff, but like below that level, it's all the same to them. And they'll just look at the list of guests and look at the website and look at the email and see if the email is spelled correctly. <laughs> um, so that was how we booked guests for many years and many years. Mm. And over time, you know, I had a list of Henry Rollins's that I could send when I was trying to book Kim Gordon. I had a list of David Crosses that I could list when I was trying to book Stephen Wright. The other thing about it is that I don't think people regretted coming on our show. Like performers and artists especially are like trying to share what they make. If you do a good job, they don't mind having spent the time, spent the time generally, especially yeah. if they don't know how few people are listening. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. 
I mean, we still punch way past our weight class in terms of like audience relative to guests, mm -hmm. you know, like, and it's because publicists are looking not to be like the thing that would get the publicist in trouble with the client is if they go do an interview and it sucks for the client. Right. You know what I mean? Like that Matt Besser was just glad to talk to people that actually cared about Matt Besser instead of doing the morning show in Kansas City, even though the morning show in Kansas City probably had a bigger audience. Uh, how did the Maximum Fun Network come to be? As in, like, how did you accumulate all of those hosts and shows that managed to feel like they all fit on the same website? It's like if you had a clipper ship and you never cleaned the hull. Uh, okay. <laughs> just over, year, over years, the barnacles become structural. Basically, you know, it started because I was moving to Los Angeles from San Francisco and I needed to earn money to eat and pay my rent. And there was no way I was going to sell ads. So membership was where it's at, where it was at. And I just started putting up PayPal subscription buttons, uh, which was the Patreon of its day and built first $50 a month in income and then 200 and then 500. And we started adding shows because by the time I started adding shows, I had a way to make money and those shows did not. So I said to them, hey, if we team up, uh, we can make money together, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and over time that went from just being me to, you know, now we have like 30 employees and Patreon has been invented since then. And the reason that people stay with us instead of going to Patreon, besides that they like their peers at Maximum Fun, is that we do a good job of making a living for them. I never set out to be a business person or build a platform or start a network. I just wanted to do my shows and still be able to eat. And that took a while, frankly. I was, you know, I grew up one slot north of poor. I grew up, we never got evicted for not paying rent, but definitely my parents had to borrow, each of my parents had to borrow money to pay rent at a variety of times. And, you know, I got free lunch all the way through high school. So I didn't have any like backup plan, but I also was fine making 12 or $15,000 a year <laughs> because I was like, I don't need much, <laughs> you know? I was like, I got... $600 for rent, $85 for health insurance, $200 for food, <laughs> you know, and I take the bus. You're obviously a student of NPR. You're also a student of hip hop. And so their question is, as it relates to NPR and even alt comics, how you see things changing and kind of particularly NPR as a medium when it comes to covering things like hip hop or alt comedy and other topics that may be traditionally they didn't really cover for their audience because it wasn't part of their audience, but I think it's something they're trying to grow and maybe get better at or not. But but what sort of the, the change you see in, in public media and maybe the larger media when it comes to covering these? these yeah, I mean, in public culture. media particularly, there was no comedy other than a little bit on fresh air of the very, very top of, you know, the, I was going to say Bill Cosby's because at the time, at the time, right. Bill Cosby's. And those were the things that I cared the most about. And I also liked sports, which also wasn't there at all. But sports is a very um, cloistered media world. It's almost like we try and we try very hard to book sports guests on Bullseye and it is, is rough because they just, you know, they have a kind of ecosystem of, you know, mutual interest, you know, beat writers and so forth. Yeah, those things just weren't on public radio at the time. 
I think I'm the only person of my generation who listened to This American Life and thought, this is inspirational for me to go into public radio, but then didn't just want to make things like This American Life. <laughs> like I was like, I love This American Life, don't get me wrong, but it just it was never what I aspired to do, right? So I had that inspiration. I was like, but it was clear that like, it was art, like it was, and it was different from the other stuff that was on public radio. It was not news as great as NPR News is. Um, and it's even greater now than it was then, but it was a different thing. It wasn't, it wasn't news and it wasn't car talk, no shade to car talk, which was a wonderful show. So I thought, well, maybe I could do something like that. So I kind of felt like maybe there was a window. I think the reason that you see more of that stuff on public radio now is frankly, just the public radio audience has always kind of started with, it has always tracked people's engagement with their communities people's engagement with their communities typically tracks with their progress through life. You know, old timers sitting on the porch remember everything about the place they live and they vote a lot more. And those people follow the news more closely. Um, and those people listen to public radio more. So I think the bottom end of public radio audience, myself notwithstanding, has always been mid thirties, early to mid thirties. That's not to say there aren't exceptions, particularly given the podcast ecosystem now and so forth. But on the radio and in terms of news, which is the core product, it's always started in the 30s, just like cable news is the same way, only more evil. And uh, so like when I, the first time I went to the public radio program directors conference, they showed a graphic about the demographics of public radio. And I was like 26 or something. And I was doing my show. In 28, maybe 26, 28. And like the graphics started with 34. And I was like, oh, so like we're statistically negligible, right? But I've now been doing my show for 20 years. I'm about to turn 40. So those things that were, it, it used to be the stylistic thing that always used to make me crazy was beats, the musical backing tracks of hip hop. If you don't know what a beat is, what, what, who are you? Those people that don't know what a beat is are now 70. You know what I mean? Right. They used to be 50 and like square in the middle. Now they're 70 and they're about to die. So uh, whereas I used to be 19 uh, and now I'm almost 40. So like it is really just a matter of public radio following its demographic as the demographic parameters of the demographic are similar, but the, the people in that demographic are different. Right. Mm, and I think it. now, you know, uh, public radio even does a pretty good job sometimes uh, covering hip hop. I think uh, Shireen Marisol Miraji uh, does some hip hop coverage that I've heard that I thought was really great. She's now the, the host of Code, NPR Code Switch, mm -hmm. um, but she used to do a lot more reporting. She does a great job. Like, my friend Andrew Noznitsky, who goes by Nas and Oz, I think is one of the most insightful hip hop critics in the country. You know, he wrote for NPR Music for a long time. I think that things are improving. And frankly, NPR Music is a big part of it. Like NPR Music is a hugely successful platform for NPR. And it has a much younger and more diverse demographic than the news programming. And they honestly do a really great job. And even just having one viral smash hit thing like Tiny Desk Concerts is a huge difference. So getting back to Max One, you mentioned you didn't, you never really intended to start a business. So when it came time to building it, how did you decide to go with a, 
a primarily audience supported model rather than focusing on advertising or even subscribers where things were, you know, behind a paywall. I mean, the biggest thing was as far as subscribers, you know, the subscriber model works when you already have an audience and it has to be a passionate audience. And frankly, I wasn't doing work that was like hot enough to get people to move people into paid subscriptions, like famous people, assholes, you know, there's a few categories of people that can move people into paid subscriptions, uh, things that are useful for people to make money. Those are things that can move people into paid subscriptions easily, but it's, it's a tough business. Advertising is similar. Like when I started and for the first 10 or 15 years of doing this, there was a negligible ad market other than specialty products. Like that's why there was, you know, one of the reasons there were so many successful tech podcasts in the first decade of podcasting is because a only technically adept people listen to podcasts and B those people buy a lot of computer crap and computer crap does bad advertising to a general audience. So, you know, if you sell Drobo's, the, the hard drive backup system, you know, you want to advertise on, on Mac weekly or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so there wasn't a, 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 an ad market. So that left audience support. So it was like, we didn't want to do paywalled subscriptions because it would have cut us off from audience growth. Everyone involved in Maximum Fun is doing this to connect with people. Like they want to influence people and reach people. Like that's why you become a performer, you know? And uh, once you go behind the paywall, you know, it's a long, slow decline Mm -hmm. because you're eventually start losing people and uh, it's really hard to add new people. Uh, how actively are you involved in any given show? Or are there ones that are sort of, sort of uh, like autonomous and has that changed over time? Yeah, most of our shows are autonomous. Um, and that was always kind of the intent. Uh, it means that we don't have strong control over our shows, which means that we have, you know, pretty variable voices. And sometimes that annoys audience members, frankly you know, they want things to be tighter, but we've always been very creative, creator driven. And part of that is letting people do what they want to do. Um, And we have very small shows in addition to very big shows. You know, the kind of the determination is more about whether we think it's worthwhile. Over the past five years or so, we've started to do more original productions that aren't just uh, a thing that I wanted to do personally. (laughs) And uh, in doing so, our our primary focus uh, or significant focus has been underheard voices because just by virtue of when we started and what the demographics of podcasting were and the nature of privilege, there's just a lot of white dudes. (laughs) We started with a lot of white dudes. So um, we wanted to, you know, as soon as we had some resources to throw at it, we wanted to give people a platform uh, that weren't just the people who could, who were in a good position to start something themselves by themselves. You know, those are shows that we produce in house. And then there's things that are in between. And so these days, I think it's probably like a third shows that we produce ourselves and two thirds shows that other people produce that we are kind of like operating as a record label for. So we have a question from the audience that kind of relates to a question I had as well related to self-care. But I mean, you have three kids, you host and produce a number of podcasts, you run a whole podcasting company, a clothing website, you uh, suffer from migraine headaches. So like, how do you still continue to do all this? And how do you, you know, take care of yourself in between? 
and someone in the same person in the chat guessed it has something to do with mangoes and satsumas. I don't know yeah. what that's about. If it's <laughs> I'm known as the king of fruit. So, okay. It is a constant struggle for me. I mean, I used to just work all the time when I didn't have kids. I used to just work all the time and it wasn't bad because I'm, I liked what I was doing mostly, not as much the business as the creative stuff, but I loved the creative stuff and I still do, you know, as brutal as this past year has been, and it's been frankly, particularly brutal for me and my family. I have gotten a lot out of once a week talking to my friends and being funny with them and laughing with them. Like that's what I love doing more than anything else in the world, you know, like making our projects with my kids, but like also <laughs> laughing with Jordan and John Hodgman. In a way that piece of my work is, is restorative. For quite a long time, my wife, Teresa was kind of the operations director for MaxFun. She's stepped back from that pretty substantially over the past few years as the staff has grown and we've been able to add business staff. But, you know, she went to law school and then decided not to become a lawyer. So it was like, well, you better come work for Max Fun because uh, I, I need the help and we got to eat. So that was a big that was a big difference. And in fact, like I would say, like a big piece of me being able to make twelve or $15,000 a year was that my wife was also working and able to make her income. I mean, I don't mean to suggest that she was like carrying us. She was making about as much as me most of that time, but like the fact that it was a two person household helped. Uh, through the pandemics, my kids have been home from school and we've had a, some family, a lot of family stuff we've had to deal with. I have had to divorce myself from the business operations almost entirely. Um, and there have been times when I couldn't even go on the air for the shows that I needed to do. And I'm just very, very lucky to have uh, partners in all of my shows who were there when I needed them to be there. When I called Kevin, the producer of Bullseye and said, I can't do it this week, man. You gotta find somebody else to host the show. He did without complaint, you know. Jennifer, the producer of Judge John Hodgman has a a young child who's in her house all the time where she's working during the pandemic. And, you know, there were times when I had to call John and Jen and say, I can't this week. Like, you got to find somebody to fill in for me. And I'm very grateful that they were able to do that. My father died last year and he never gave me any advice. I mean, he really never gave me any advice. He told me once that, that the, one of the best parts about being getting older it, it is that the number of people that you might be romantically interested in or find attractive grows over time. Like the back end gets higher over time, like the younger people get higher, but then the top one goes faster. So like when you're 50, you still think 25 year olds are attractive, but you also think 55 year olds are attractive and it just gets bigger. And bigger. Whereas when you're 20, uh, you only find people between 18 and 21 attractive. So that was one piece of advice he gave me. The only other one he ever gave me was like, don't work so hard. And uh, that's a really tough one for me for uh, so much of my identity comes from my work. Like it's all I've done my entire life. You know, I'm 20 years of doing this. You know, I was always headed, I was already headed this direction, but you know, the pandemic and, and the stuff going on with my family and my father dying and so forth was a very vivid reminder that I had to take that stuff seriously. I'm a better parent than my dad, for example. <laughs> I love my dad. I love my dad, but uh, like I'm a, I'm a better parent than either of my parents. Um, 
but I've also frankly learned a lot from spending time with my wife and her family. My wife and I have been together since we were teenagers and her parents are much better at being, my, my parents are amazing people or are and were amazing people, but they're mixed bags as parents and Teresa's parents are extraordinary parents. And so I've learned a lot from them and learned a lot from Teresa f- for whom this is, you know, to be a family person was always essential to who she was in, you know, I grew up in a divorced house with, as a sort of semi only child, like to me, being in a family means you sit in your room and read a book. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a constant struggle and it's only gotten harder, but we're working really hard on uh, making it sustainable over the long term. One of the things about growing the business has been that while the stakes are higher and the stress is higher because I'm responsible for others, which is not my strength, I also, you know, I have the chance to have people working on things who are better than I am at them. You know, we have a CEO who was a, he's a business person. Yeah. <laughs> so manage like he works for us because he's a really good guy and didn't want to be a management consultant anymore, but like he was a management consultant. I, I can only say that it's been very difficult and it was a lot, it was a lot easier when all I had to worry about was myself and, and, you know, to some extent maintaining my relationship with my wife. So kind of following up on that in a lot of your interviews, certainly to me listening, at least there's a palpable joy of the fact that you're talking to this person. Oftentimes when you come out of a, a soundbite from a movie or a piece of comedy that you like, you're, you're laughing and it seems like you're, you certainly have pursued something that was a dream and that is a joy for you to do. But also, as you just spoke, like there's a cost, certainly, I think, to chasing dreams and to having to work as hard as you might have to. So what, what do you say to college students, many of whom you're aspiring journalists or want to work in media and are chasing a dream about the rewards and you know potential drawbacks of that path? I would say, first and foremost, and this is something I learned to say out loud when I used to do a talk called Make Your Thing about making independent media. It's fine to have a job that's chill and then do something you really care about 10 hours a week. (laughs) Like if you, for a while, I had a job working for a a place called the Trust for Public Land and a nonprofit and just people there were nice and it paid $15 an hour. And uh, I worked like 30 hours a week. That was probably when I was happiest, mm. when my life was easiest and most comfortable. I was making the sound of young America on the side. And I just had a chill job that didn't, that didn't take it out of me. I, what I usually like, the way I like to put it is like, uncles don't build train sets because they want to have a train set empire. Like they do that because it's fulfilling to them. Yeah. And they don't expect to do that 40 hours a week and get paid for it. So if you find something that's fulfilling to you, you can do it because it's fulfilling and you can look for a way to make money that whatever is enough money, you know, it's different for different people in different circumstances, but you can try and find a way to make enough money that doesn't suck the life out of you. Those jobs do exist. So I would say that, like, especially, you know, folks who are watching this are probably going to college or graduates of college. Like there are jobs that college graduates can get in particular that, you know, you may have to give up making a bunch of money, but you can still make enough money to eat and it won't kill you and just feel feel okay about how what you do during the day and do something that you really love besides that. So I would say that first and foremost, and in terms of like actual practical, if you want to get a job, I would say number one, 
do the stuff that you say you're going to do at the time you say you're going to do it, write down what you're supposed to be doing. Those are the jobs. <laughs> like those are, that is basically job skills. Like I have just summarized job skills, write down the things people tell you to do and then do them when you say you're going to do them. If you can do those and you can get a job, you will rock it to the top or at least the middle. <laughs> like all it real, all like most employees, I say this as an employer, like most employers are just looking for somebody who's not going to fuck up mm. uh, because it's so much hassle when somebody fucks. You just want to ask somebody to do it and then they do it. It's not about how great of a job they do. They do it fine and they do it when they said they were going to do it. Tremendous, gorgeous. And that was a skill that I did not have as a young man and had to develop over time. I still sometimes struggle with it. I wonder if I would be bad at having a job. That is the top thing. And then in terms of like getting yourself out there, learn skills that other people don't have. In podcasting, if you learn some engineering skills, and I'm talking about taking a one semester junior college class. If you took that class and you come in and you say like, I know how to run a pop filter. I know how to compress audio. I know how to run a board. That's a skill that very few people have. It's not that hard to acquire. It's just a little boring. So if you have any of those skills, like that's the path to even to creative work, you know, because you just get there and you show people that you're a good person and that you're reliable and, and you get, you, you'll move up. Right on. Well, Jesse, we won't take any more of your time. Uh, we really can't thank you enough for well, coming. I'm in so grateful, so grateful to have the opportunity and I hope everyone is inspired to throw their life away uh, on, <laughs> on <laughs> donor supported dick jokes. Uh, I know I certainly am. So there's, there's one of us in here that is. Please say thank you to the family for letting us steal you for an hour. I will. And, Bye -bye. Uh, have a great evening. You too.